This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Well, we hear a lot of talk today about human rights, but as political agendas have influenced the term's usage over the years, we have unfortunately seen a departure from the understanding of human rights that is rooted in the concept of natural rights and natural law. My next guest makes the case that the international community has moved away from this concept of human rights with freedom at the center, but why did they do it and what difference does it make? We're going to talk today with Dr. Aaron Rhodes, a human rights and civil society activist, as well as an advocate for the reform of international human rights law and institutions. He was executive director of the International Helsinki Federation for Human Rights and is president of the Forum for Religious Freedom Europe. Today, we'll be talking to him about his book called The Debasement of Human Rights, How Politics Sabotage the Ideal of Freedom. Aaron, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So this is a term we've heard a lot, human rights. It's talked about. It's listed in documents. We hear about it from the U.N. What would you say is the correct definition of it as traditionally understood as opposed to what it has evolved into? I think that any definition, any any correct definition of human rights has to uh, refer to natural rights, which are inherent rights, uh, necessary for our fulfillment as as individuals and um, natural rights is a is a historical term. It's some it's a term that comes to us from antiquity. And um, natural rights um, are rights that allow us to to be free. Right. First of all, and the problem with human rights today is that you rarely hear hear the word freedom. Hmm. And you more rarely hear the word uh, natural rights. Right. Uh, both of these things have kind of faded away from human rights as human rights has gradually become a kind of regulatory scheme for creating uh, conditions uh, for welfare. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Now, when we're talking about human rights being rooted in natural law and that this concept of freedom is so central to the understanding of human rights, in what is that based? In other words, what common understanding informs that? As you go back through history, you look at people like Hobbes and Locke, and even back, as you mentioned, to antiquity. What was it that those who understood it properly emphasized so strongly in terms of the individual as opposed to the collective, if you want to say it that way? What was it about natural law that really made us free? Well, of course, it didn't make us free. It's respect for natural rights that makes us free. Yes, correct. But right. um, uh, well, this is, a, <laughs> this is a, you're asking me some very tough questions here, because um, the, the the Stoics uh, in in ancient uh, ancient Rome uh, made a very deep distinction between natural law and positive law. 
And I think that this is another core idea in human rights that, 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 that has kind of faded away. Natural law is what constrains the laws that, govern, that governments and legislatures make. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's why our Constitution says, you know, Congress shall make no law, yes. etc., that, that infringes on, on basic freedoms. And, and, and the, the, the idea that, the in, that individual liberty and individual dignity is sacro- sacrosanct is, is one of the foundations of natural law. Sure. Right. So so that's interesting. And yet now we have a U.N., for example, as you've mentioned, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which came out in 1948. That brought human rights into the realm of international law. So you had this change. What was the change and why was there a change in the understanding? Uh, well, uh, the, the change was that... Um, in in attempting to universalize the idea of human rights in in, 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 in international law, they took they, they they sort of assumed a kind of multiculturalism when they defined human rights. Hmm. So the the, con, the 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 definition of human rights that you find in the in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights really resulted from um, a survey, which uh, the UN Human Rights Commission sent out to spiritual leaders and political leaders from all over the world asking them what what do you think is human rights and they got this big list and then they said well here we are here we have human rights <laughs> so that it, it it rather than applying reason and 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 respecting the philosophical tradition of 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 natural rights they they took human rights to mean what people thought it was hmm. and some of the people who responded to this this survey were were you know thought that human rights came from governments sure and human rights were basically welfare services provided by governments yeah. and by the state yeah as opposed by as opposed to um freedoms that we have because we're human it's so interesting because you, you don't determine these things by a survey. That seems like a very inadequate way of determining what human rights actually are as opposed to people's opinions on what they are. That's right. That, I think, I mean, I, you have to remember that in 1948, this was at the end of World War II, and the world was faced with some very serious geopolitical challenges, one of which was to sort of integrate the, the totalitarian states within the moral within a, within a moral community, right? And the way they did this was to accept their definition of human rights as being economic and social rights. So it served this this uh, kind of capitu- this philosophical capitulation served a geopolitical function, right? And it was also the result of progressive parties, because right? The, I mean, our our country. Um, doesn't have a reputation for upholding economic and social rights in general. Uh, uh, there's a great ambivalence about these these rights in America, but at the same time, the United States uh, was was very instrumental in setting up this uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, including economic and social rights mainly because of the efforts of the Roosevelt administration. Oh, right, because he wanted to expand basic liberties into what you just mentioned, social and economic rights. So was that really a turning point under FDR? Uh, 
Well, it was a, it was a, it was it was the, it was when the the international human rights system was established, and the the Roosevelt administration fed into this with their concept of economic and social rights, which wow. they, they, they Roosevelt wanted to create an economic bill of rights to go along with the the bill of rights that exists now to the constitution. Right. But why did he and do this, why did he want to expand it that way? What was the motivation? Well, that was his belief. He he that, that he 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 thought that, you know, he wanted to he wanted to make a welfare benefits a constitutional right. Yeah. To sort of uh, um put them into the foundation of our political system. Wow. It well, and you even said that the ambivalence about natural rights went back to what was it, the early 19th century. So you can even take it back further than that. Well, sure. And, and um, you know, uh, our history uh, hasn't been so great in this respect, because not, although natural rights were the, the motivation for the Revolutionary War, they were the, the, the natural rights formed the, the concept which gave the, the, the colonists the, the, the moral courage to confront the, the you know, the, mo- the strongest army in the world yeah. and, to, and to risk everything for their freedom. But uh, just a few decades later, you can find uh, Americans just forgetting all about natural rights because they, they had freedom. So when people have freedom, they, they tend to forget the, the moral basis of freedom. Yeah. And it, you can see it today, of course. Of course you can. Right. And, and this is what you're talking about in your book, that ultimately, given the other things that you've already mentioned, politics ends up getting involved in sabotaging this ideal of freedom. And that leads to all sorts of things that we've seen develop on the global scale that really do end up debasing human rights. And so that this is so interesting to me. And I want to get into more about it when we come back. Aaron Rhodes with us. The Debasement of Human Rights is the name of his book. And we'll be back on Janet Meffer today after this. The Ministry of Preborn is there for moms in crisis who are choosing between life and death for their preborn babies. Meet Sophie. At 22 weeks pregnant, Sophie was pressured by her mother and boyfriend to terminate her pregnancy. After meeting with a preborn counselor, she found the love and support she needed. After I had that first soldier sound and I saw her and I was looking at the pictures over and over and over again, that's when I decided I was going to stand up to my mother and tell her, no, I can't do an abortion. Sophie chose life and now she's awaiting the birth of her baby girl. Every day, Preborn is on the front lines fighting Planned Parenthood to help young moms just like Sophie to choose life. For a gift of $140 today, you can help to rescue five babies' lives. And now through a matching gift, your gift will be doubled, rescuing 10 babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Authorities in China are making life difficult for Christians. It's against the law to share Christ with children under age 18. We cannot preach to children under 18. That is their practice and law. But when the parents bring kids to the church, when you can teach them English and then you can send the gift of gospel to them, it is a great joy. Believers are teaching English to young people using a Bible League program that uses God's Word as the source of the reading assignments. And many are coming to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior and sharing Him with their families. Please join Bible League in sending God's Word to Bibleist believers in China and around the world for only $5 per Bible. $50 sends 10, $500 sends 100. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you for your support. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. So good to have you here. And Dr. Aaron Rhodes is joining us. So good to have him here as well. He is the president of the Forum for Religious Freedom Europe and was executive director of the International Helsinki Federation for Human Rights. His book is called The Debasement of Human Rights, How Politics Sabotage the Ideal of Freedom. We were talking a little bit uh, before we went to the break, Aaron, about the fact that we have understood natural rights. It's the basis really for our understanding of our form of government and our republic. And yet we see the UN, for example, under its Universal Declaration of Human Rights, bringing in these concepts of social and economic rights. Now, what happened from there when that understanding began to come into play? What was the outlook that they were hoping for? In other words, what would that look like? Uh, what are economic rights and social rights in, in the context of human rights on a practical scale? What were they wanting to happen or wanting to support happening uh, by saying it that way? Well, you know, I think <clears throat> I think that, you know, th- this was the work of some very devious people, but also some very well-meaning people. And, you know, you have to remember that the communist governments feared human rights more than anything else. They saw human rights as the idea that had the power to uh, displace them and 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 uh, and show that they're that and you know illuminate the hypocrisy of the, of their their governments right but uh, the progressive parties in europe and and america were very strong after world war 2 and these parties um embraced the notion that to be free and to have dignity you have to have all kinds of entitlements economic entitlements and so they, they take the idea of freedom. Well, I see freedom as freedom from coercion. And this is basically the classical notion of freedom. But they saw freedom as being, you know, having, 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 a, having a good life, hmm. enable, enabling you to have leisure, to have government benefits, to have uh, security of different kinds provided by, you know, welfare entitlements. Yeah. And, and so the... The basis, the, 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 the Universal Declaration of Human Rights tries to bring these two things together. It tries to bring the two ideas of freedom together, the f- freedom from coercion on one hand, and f- the freedom that is thought to result from welfare entitlements. Hmm. And, of course, the latter idea... Um, has some serious flaws because, yeah. and you can see that today. You can. Uh, you, the, the Chinese government has has uh, very much increased 
the standard of living in China, but they haven't increased uh, the freedom of its citizens. No. In fact, freedom is on the decline in China. That's just a good, good. That's just one example. Yeah, that is. So, a good so, so, so you know, welfare entitlements don't really, necess- don't really, don't really necessarily um, make people free. Well, and and it gets away from what you emphasize that this whole idea in natural rights is the freedom of the individual, as opposed to what these guys are emphasizing, which is really involving the power of the state. Well, when the power of the state increases, does that not necessarily decrease the freedom of the individual? It does, because the um, all of the economic and social rights are collective rights. That's right. Yeah. Um, Whereas the the very concept of human rights is the concept of individual rights. That's wow. So now and now we hear about other things being added to this category of human rights, haven't we? We've had like LGBT activists. We need to have this. You have a human right here. And human, I mean, how broadly is this term going to be expanded? I mean, is there an end in sight or do you think they've sort of stopped uh, economic and social? This is enough. Or do you see it expanding beyond the current definition? Well, it is expanding. It's you know because it's a playground for political activists who want to label their objectives as as a human right. Yeah. And they do this because in the hope that you know it'll become a matter of law rather than just a you know consider considered a political goal. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned the LGBT activists. I mean, I you know I'm a, I'm a believer in 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 the the human rights of of everybody. Sure. And uh, uh, the question is, is there a special category of human rights that we could we could call LGBT rights? And this I don't think so. Right. Because it's it, these are simply human rights. Yeah. The, 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 the equality before the law, um, uh, especially. Yeah, exactly. Right. But but if it becomes a matter of of progressive agenda and and the understanding philosophically that they have about the role of government and what you should have a right to whatever kind of a utopianism, is that not also part of what fuels it that we want to create in some sense a utopian sort of society because that is what would make people flourish the most if we had utopia on earth to some extent? Well, you're right. You're right. It is utopian. And uh, what's really depressing about human rights today is that it's um, it's an idea which is fueling a, a, a move towards global governance, toward uh, centralized regulation of very many aspects of human economic life and uh, social life. And human rights is becoming um, a, something that is hemming people in hmm. uh, rather than liberating them. Yeah. Right. Well, it's kind of interesting. It wasn't too long ago. I think it was a couple of months ago where you had well, you did have this history of the Human Rights Council voting to create that special rapporteur on the situation of human rights in Iran, for example. And then you just had a few months ago, this Iranian government official under sanctions by the U.S. and the European Union addressing the U.N. Human Rights Council. And people said, what is going on here? I mean, are you no longer able to completely distinguish between people who oppress human rights? versus standing for them, like you say. I mean, there there have been lots of incidents, it seems, on the global level of inconsistencies and hypocrisies, shall we say, about who you prop up and who you ignore and who you sanction. I mean, has that 
sort of become an, an ongoing issue in the human rights community that we don't always get it right and sometimes we're not clamping down on people who truly oppress others? Well, it's, see, the thing is that the concept of human rights is so contradictory that it's very difficult to tell who's oppressing others. Hmm. Um, according to human rights. I mean, when North Korea is the most oppressive country in, in the world. It is. But when, human, when North Korea was examined for its human rights record uh, by the UN Human Rights Council, they bragged about their e- economic and social rights. Oh, man. And they talked about their health care system and their educational system. And they were praised by numerous countries for upholding human rights. And, you know, the, the picture that you get is that, well, it's kind of a mixed picture. Yes, they have some problems. They have, you know, they, <laughs> they burn people alive yeah. um, if they're not, if they, if they don't agree with them politically and they smother babies who are, the, you know, who are, who are born to, to non-Korean fathers. <sighs> but, um, but, but at the same time, look, they have, look at, look at their welfare policies. And so this, this, expanded and 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 debased concept of human rights uh, results in a kind of moral equivalency. It does. Yeah, you're starving your population, but at least you provide health care. I mean, come on. That's just, yeah. you, you have such an incredible lack of moral clarity. And that that's the thing, is when everything is modeled like that, you've lost the whole principle to begin with of what human rights is supposed to be about. Yeah, that's that's my point. And I think the... I think that the, what I tried to illustrate in my book, I mean, a lot of people know that you can, there's, a, there's some questions about the, the validity of economic and social, social rights, but I tried to illustrate the long-term consequences of this, uh, the presence of these rights in the international system. And you, know, have, you have the proliferation of, of human rights, first of all. There, there are just more and more treaties, more and more economic and social rights treaties, and the result is a kind of dilution of human rights so that uh, problems like torture and freedom of expression and freedom of association, those basic freedoms are now relegated to a, to a rather, to a small corner <laughs> of the human rights uh, discourse. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, and how does this impact religious freedom? In, in that way, religious freedom is is probably one of the most important freedoms that that we can have. Right. But of course, the UN tells us that uh, all these human rights are the same, mm. are equal. Mm. You know, so that the you know religious freedom is no more uh, no more important. You know, the, I'll give you a good example of this uh, problem in the European Union. Um, they call. Uh, the right to free employment counseling, a human right. Hmm. Now, if you, if you believe this dogma that all human rights are equal, does that mean that, that the, the, the right to uh, free employment, well, they call it free, of course it's not, but the, the right to government-paid or publicly funded uh, employment counseling is, is just as important as, the, as freedom of religion? Or it, does it mean that freedom of religion is no more important than, than, than having access to state-funded employment counseling? And, 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 uh, and I think, you know, we need to keep freedom of religion very high on the, on, on the ideals and, and the, that we cherish. Yeah. And, and we, we can't allow uh, freedom of religion and other fundamental freedoms to lose their sacrosanct quality and to, and to take on the character of just another kind of political decision uh, 
Uh, And we have to keep in mind these very lofty ideas about inherent rights and um, natural rights uh, uh, in order to protect our protect these freedoms from being encroached upon by uh, governments around the world which are increasingly fascistic yes, you know I, I just want to say one other thing when this expansion of this concept of human rights uh, started the actual enjoyment of human rights began to deteriorate mm. and uh, I think that uh, most of the institutions that analyze the, the the trends with respect to freedom and human rights understand that human rights has been deteriorating since the 1990s, and and I think that there's a clear you know causal relationship between these two things. No doubt about it. Well, a great book, The Debasement of Human Rights. Dr. Aaron Rhodes with us. Aaron, so good to have you here. Thank you very very much for being with us. Okay, thank you. Thank you very very much, and we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, I have to admit, one of the songs that always makes me tear up is Cinderella by Stephen Curtis Chapman. I'm sure you know this song. It's about watching his little girl grow up. And you might recall the chorus, I will dance with Cinderella. I don't want to miss even one song because all too soon the clock will strike midnight and she'll be gone. See, I'm going to cry already. There's an incredible bond, though, between father and daughter. But sometimes that relationship needs some help along the way. How can dads and daughters connect on a deeper level through heartfelt conversation? Well, my next guest knows how. She is Dr. Michelle Watson-Canfield, licensed professional counselor, radio host, and founder of the ABBA Project, which is a group forum for dads with daughters from 13 to 30. And today we'll be talking about her book called Let's Talk Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters. Michelle, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you here. Hi, Janet. It's an honor to join you today. Well, glad you're with us. This I really do get a little teary-eyed anytime I talk about dads and daughters. I'm very much a daddy's girl myself, oh. and I've got a number of daughters, and they love their daddy. Why is this relationship, do you think, so important? Oh, my goodness. So many reasons, right? I'm sure you could weigh on this as well, weigh in on this. But let's just start with the fact that most of us have the same last name as our dad. So there's something about our identity who we are, our name, right, that ties to our dad. Then let's just look at the research that shows over and over repeatedly, it's confirmed in the research, that every area of a daughter's life is better when she feels connected. There's the key. It's a feeling of connection to her dad. Do you want me to just list a few of those? Yeah, do it. I love it. Okay. So dads that love research, they're like, just give me the facts, (laughs) ma'am. Here they are. So daughters do better in school. They get better grades. They're more likely to finish high school and attend college. They have greater self-esteem, less suicide attempts, less body dissatisfaction, Hmm. and healthier weight. I mean, I'm not even done. This is all just because of a bond, a connection between between a daughter and her dad. Okay, let me keep going. She will delay, 
having premarital sex, which means decreases in teen pregnancy. I mean, Janet, who would have ever thought that a connection between a dad and a daughter would work as a contraceptive? Yeah, right. Come on. Right. So daughters, again, continuing this list, they're more likely to find steady employment and hold it. Okay, that's significant, right? Because there's more confidence, usually in a daughter who has a connection to her dad. She'll stand out among her peers. Again, more. Uh, another significant thing is, you know, more, like I said earlier, self-esteem and less depression, lower rates of substance use. And one more I'll mention among the many is she will have more pro-social empathy. So there's something in the heart space of a daughter when she feels connected to her dad that she gives out of the overflow of that bond. So how's that for proof? That is great. That relationship matters. That is a great list. And I know we've had a lot more conversations in the last several years, at least doing a talk show on the importance of fathers to the home in general and the importance of fathers for sons. But this one is very intriguing because part of the reason is something that you touch on in the book. There is a difference, a substantive difference between male and female. So when you have that opposite sex relationship, and I I think every daughter could talk about this, there is a way sometimes that you will relate to your mom when you're talking to your mom that doesn't work quite the same way as when you're talking to your dad because of the propensity that men have for wanting to fix problems when when women want to just talk. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that is a really important thing that you discuss in the book. Absolutely. In fact, my new husband, so you heard my new name on there, Can, Canfield at the end. So I just got married, Janet, at the age of 60. Congratulations. Ago. Wow. Crazy. And God in his providence led me to marry, his name is Dr. Ken Canfield, and he started the National Center for Fathering. And his wife went to heaven last year and surprised both of us with this partnership. But what Ken just told me, he, he said, Michelle, I think you could call this book, Let's Talk and Listen. Hmm. Because he said, really, this listening piece that you address is as important, if not more important than the talking part. And I said, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Because dad, when you bring your male energy, your male presence that a daughter needs, she needs that kind of interaction from you in order to know how to relate to men in the world, whether it's a future husband, that kind of thing. And so, Dad, when you give your daughter the gift of listening to her, you actually esteem her because you're giving her the message that she's worth listening to. (laughs) And what I tell dads a lot, you know, in the last decade, I've been coaching dads of daughters, as I say, if you don't tell your daughter what you think of her, not just what you think, but what you think of her, and build her up, esteem her, every other voice will outrank yours. And she needs to know where you're at with her at a heart level. And I think that's one of the things, going back to the last verse of the whole Old Testament, where God says, if the hearts of fathers don't turn, isn't that interesting? The question is, what does a heart turn look like? Not just a head turn, because as daughters, and I'm sure you can speak to this probably as, as well as I can as a daughter yourself, right? Yes. As one who's birthed daughters. Yes. That you watch something happen in a daughter when her dad shows up. Yep. It's like our eyes light up. Daddy, when we're little, do you see me as beautiful? Like you said in the Cinderella song. Yeah. But even as adult women, we still want to be that sparkle yes. in our dad's eyes. And so dads, you matter. And no matter the message you've gotten from the media or television, or in your home, or your family of origin, Janet, uh, Janet and I are standing here as allies saying, you matter, 
your presence is, is significant to the development of a healthy daughter. And we just want to esteem you and encourage you and applaud you today not to give up pursuing her heart, no matter the message she ever gives you that you don't matter. Well said. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. And yet you do run into challenges. I know when you're trying to bring dads and daughters together because this is a fallen world and there are relationships between dads and daughters that don't work so well. Where do you begin in trying to bring dads and daughters together when you are working with them? Mm-hmm. That's, in fact, I've had that come up in my counseling office this week, actually, oh, wow. where I'm looking at this dad. I'm sitting with a mom and a dad with their 17-year-old. And I said, as I hear this, she's opening up to mom a lot about boys, about body image, about weight. But I said, Dad, it's time for you to kick it up a notch. Yeah. And he goes, but she's pushing me away. Hmm. I said, welcome to that stage of life. Right. This is common for 17-year-olds. And I really encouraged him, as I'm encouraging dads who are listening, to let your daughter push back on you because those muscles, if you will, that she uses in relationship to you are going to help her outside your home to push back against influences in the world, right? Mm. So that that isn't just a bad thing. But sometimes I've observed that dads, tell me what you think of this, Janet, would sometimes rather do nothing than do it wrong. Oh, yes. Yes. Right. Yes. So they go, okay, I'm making it worse. Yeah. And men are smart enough to say, you know, I think I'm going to back off. I'm going <laughs> to let mom go in. And it's like, okay, this isn't an either or. Yeah. It's got to be both and. That's right. Dad, so to enter into your daughter's life and sometimes just give her the grace that this is hormonal. You know, her brain and her body are changing at, this, at these different stages of life. And she'll grow through it. And how do you maintain the, the, the relationship in the middle of that rather than just being kind of absent for those maybe rough years? And so that's why I wrote this book, Janet, with 60 scripts that dads can use with words right in front of them to open up conversations with their daughters on all kinds of topics, fun, lighthearted ones, all the way to heavy ones about suicide and depression and body image and sexual harassment and same you know, even same-sex attraction, whatever. You know, Dad, if you have the script in front of you, you can't do it wrong. Because right. if your daughter hates the question, just blame me and I'll be your fall guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my fault. This lady gave it to me. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Exactly. But, you know, this is what, when you talk about the fact that men would rather do nothing than do something wrong, that in and of itself is a male perspective, which is why that gap, I think, needs to be bridged, just as you're doing in this book, to explain to dads what's going through your daughter's mind. Because we definitely do not think in that way when it goes back to the issue of, Dad, I don't necessarily want a solution. Sometimes I just want your sympathy. Sometimes I just want your ear, and I need to be able to interact and have you not zone out and have you care about it. I want to get into more on this. We do need to pause for a very quick break. We're going to do it when we come back with Dr. Michelle Watson-Canfield, author of Let's Talk, Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters. Stay with us. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today.
For those of us who live in America, it may be hard to believe, but there are people in the country of Lebanon who have never heard about Jesus. That's exactly why Heart for Lebanon is there, working in the nation that's home to more than two million Syrian refugee families who have arrived there to escape civil war and terrorism. But every day, Heart for Lebanon is there, reaching out to these needy families in Jesus' name, telling them about him and providing food, Christian education, and survival essentials. And the Lord is changing their lives. Let me tell you about one of those refugees, Hanifa, who is 10 years old. She lost her mother when she was just a toddler, but Heart for Lebanon met her as they were delivering food portions to her family. With no opportunity for formal education, Hanifa wakes her father up early in the morning when Heart for Lebanon's educational fun truck is scheduled to arrive. Recently, during a skit about God's love, Hanifa placed her faith and trust in Jesus for salvation. And now, because her father is illiterate, she's reading the Bible to him each evening. This family, although currently living in very tough times, is slowly starting to realize the hope that only comes through Jesus Christ and the hope that only reaches them because people like you give to get the gospel to them. Your single investment of just $116 helps someone like Hanifa and her family with supplies needed to survive the next four months and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. Perhaps you could help a family like this for an entire year by joining our Hope Provider team at just $29 a month. Whatever you can do, please call now. 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner to click at JanetMefford.com. These families need immediate help. More than that, they need Jesus and they need you. Please call now. The number is 888-247-5499. That number again, 888-247-5499. Thank you. And God bless you for your generosity. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us Dr. Michelle Watson Canfield. So good to have her here. She's a licensed professional counselor, radio host, and founder of the ABBA Project, and also author of the book we're discussing called Let's Talk, Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters. Such an important relationship that dads have with their daughters. It's not the same as it is with moms and daughters, and this is why it's so important for that bond to be strengthened. And Michelle, we were talking before we went to the break about sometimes dads would rather do nothing than do it wrong. And yet you've come up with these scripts that dads can use for having these conversations with their daughters. What are some of the things that you advise dads to try to do? You mentioned having a teenage daughter, for example, and that can be a really strange time of life and -hmm. difficult to navigate. But how would you advise, let's take that as an example, how would you advise a dad to try to bond with his teenage daughter who may be a little crabby at times, but still needs that interaction? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I encourage dads to to back off, right? Kind of, kind of get a bigger zoom, if you will, kind of a, a larger picture to say she won't be here forever. Just remember that this is a stage of life. Just like when she went through what some people call the terrible twos, yes. right? You know that age and that stage isn't going to last forever. And sometimes when it's really hard, dads forget that. Another thing that can help dads is to ask another woman in your life about your daughter. Hmm. What do you, an aunt, a wife, an ex-wife, a, a co-worker, ask another woman, hey, you've been there, what do you think she needs? And that's really what I sought to do in the book, kind of like I'm pulling up a chair next to dads saying, you know, some of this stuff is normal. She's going to grow out of it or through it. How can you maintain a relationship in the middle of it? And what I always say is that when we as women open our mouths, our heart opens. Yes. Like when women stop talking, 
their hearts closed, right? True. So then when a daughter's heart is open, her dad's heart is open. So the, it really comes back to how do you get her talking? So dad, a practical way that you could, with whatever age your daughter is, get the conversation started is ask her on a scale of zero to 10, 10 being the most, zero being the least, what number would you give to say how close you think we are? Mm. And then follow that up with, what could I do to be a better dad to you? Wow. Like, let your daughter tell you what she needs, because they really all, you know, as you know, all your daughters aren't the same. No. They don't come with a playbook, and I always say, I'm going to help you write one. And so as you have a pen in hand during these dad-daughter dates, I encourage dads to take each daughter out at least once a month, find your special place you love to go. Even in the middle of quarantine and social distancing, you can find a restaurant or a coffee place that you love to go to, and then use these scripts to get to know her better and write down her answers. It'll become like a time capsule that you'll have for years to come as you get to hear her tell you what she's thinking, what she's needing, what she's feeling, what she's afraid of, and you can partner with her in helping her become more confident in who she is. That's really good. Do you find a common ground with a lot of daughters on what they do want from their dads, especially ones who might feel estranged? Is there kind of a commonality there where they give the same answer, what I really want from my dad is X? Well, I would. that's a great question because I, I would say the common thing I hear is that daughters say, my dad doesn't really listen to me. Hmm. He just lectures me or he's always disappointed in me. Daughters hate that. They're going to back off. That's a lot of times where the estrangement has come. Even this week, I've heard about dad's anger more than once hmm. that a, a daughter in, in this was a counseling session who's 15 said, I, I'm so tired of him getting mad at me all the time, and so then she doesn't want to, in a divorce situation, spend as much time with dad. Yeah. So I tell, I, I tell dads, here's a practical way to deal with your anger. How do you drop the anger? Is that, you know how when kids are little, you give them a timeout based on how old they are? Mm-hmm. You know, you're three years old, you get a three-minute timeout. So I'm saying, Dad, if you're 50 years old, give yourself a 50-minute timeout when you know you're getting heated. Hmm. Go around the block, get in the car, and tell her, I'm going to clear my head, I'm going to be back, and then have the conversation so that you can calm down what we call that midbrain, where you have your emotional centers and you get heated, and then that frontal lobe where you think and have good judgment and reasoning, it goes offline. Well, that happens for all of us. So, Dad, take care of your own anger first. Come back so that you can lead your daughter and connect at a heart level because your daughter wants that from you, for you to be proud of her, for you to delight in her. So the ways you can do that is you've got to take care of yourself first because your daughter needs that from you. That's really good. Really good advice. What about the flip side? When you're counseling daughters on how to have a better relationship with their dads, what Mm -hmm. sorts of things do daughters need to understand about men and particularly about their fathers? Because this is obviously a two-way street on some level. Absolutely. So sometimes it's it's helping a daughter understand that your dad's reaction, if it's an 8, 9, or 10 on a 0 to 10 scale, it's his old stuff, I always say. It's not about you. So if he's had a bad day at work and he comes home with a short fuse, you internalize his, 
his reaction as being something wrong with you. Mm. But the truth is, your dad, right, he's human too. He's got his own stuff. And if you can remember that, if you would gauge that, that was a big nine. You know what, hon, that wasn't about you. So give your dad space. But I, I don't know if you would say this with your dad, Janet, but would you say there's any truth to that idea of a daughter internalizing her dad's view of her? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. And I had, I still do have such a a great relationship with my dad. He really is a great, great man. And I've not had any problems or estrangement or anything from him my entire life. But oh, yeah, for sure. And, and also, I think when you have different personalities, when you have a dad, my dad is an engineer, so he's very, very Mm. facts oriented and solution oriented and all the rest. And I tend not to be so much that way. There is a lot of like you. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. So there has to be that kind of understanding. But you're right. You're right. There may be something else going on with dad because he's acting this way rather than that way. And yeah, especially as you get older as a daughter, you do see that more. I think a lot of this, too, is maturity on the daughter's part. You see a lot more when you get older than you probably did when you were 17 about your father. Exactly. And the thing I would also say to dads is sometimes men, and this is maybe offensive, what I'm going to say next to some men listening, but I have experienced this in my family, even with my dad, who's still living as well, that sometimes it's harder for men to come and say they're sorry, will you forgive me? Yes. And again, I know it's hard for women too, but dad's listening, if you've hurt your daughter's heart and you really know you did something that you regret, go make amends. Because humility goes a long way to rebuilding a bridge if there's estrangement. And I'm all about giving dads really practical ways to engage their daughter's heart. So if you're a dad listening who has estrangement with your daughter, because, Jenna, I would say that probably 75% of the emails I get from men across the country are about the fact that they're estranged from their daughters and don't know what to do. Really? And so I say, Dad, if your daughter doesn't feel safe being with you because you've maybe hurt her in a way that you think is legitimate, but she's, you know, really wanting distance from you. An idea that I have is go get a journal and begin to use it where you write in it to her in hope and belief that God will one day restore that relationship. And you put the date, you put what you're praying for her, what you dream for her, what you wish you could tell her, what you remember back when it was better between you. And then when the relationship is restored, can you imagine, Janet, the power of dad giving his daughter that book and saying, see, you were never far from my heart no matter what it might have looked like. Yeah, and love goes a long way. I mean, that's such an understatement. But even if you are having some difficulties with a relationship, your dad loves you, you love your dad. I mean, it seems like if, if you will focus on that as your overarching theme, if both parties want to come together, that's half the battle right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. (laughs) Yeah. And I would imagine that mom could play a role, right, in trying to facilitate if there really is an estrangement. Have you found that to be something you've dealt with in your counseling? Absolutely. In fact, we as women have more power than we may sometimes realize, right, to either make comments against dad, especially in a divorce. So then the daughter ends up, right, wanting or being forced to choose where her loyalty lies. Mm. So women, even if you're in a situation where dad really hasn't stepped up, watch your own mouth, right? Because, again, your daughter will internalize her dad's view of her. So if he isn't spending time or is 
moved on or is really busy, watch what you say that might be negative about her dad because, right, she has his DNA, so part of her identity is still tied to her dad, whether or not he's in the picture. But I think another thing is women buy this book for your sons, for your grandsons, depending on your age. We as women can help facilitate strengthening the dad-daughter bond. So get the book for them. Very good. Well, it's called Let's Talk Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters, a really helpful resource from Dr. Michelle Watson Canfield. Michelle, it went so fast, but it was great to have you. Thank you very, very much for being here. Oh, it was a joy to be with you today, Janet. Thank you so much. Oh, you bet. God bless you. And thanks again for all your wisdom. And thank you for joining us on Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time.